0: Everybody, welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast, brought to you by the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang here in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm joined by Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. And we're also joined by Ronan McLaughlin in Ireland. Hi, Ronan. Hi, James. Uh, Ronan, I feel like we're like maybe at risk of losing you to a
1: Formula One gig at some point mm. soon. So, how was how was your trip to Coda? Uh, yeah. If there's any Formula One teams listening, um. You know how to find me. Well, you probably don't. But um. <laughs> uh, it was it was pretty good. Yeah, it was a long, long time since I was in the states, so it was nice nice to get back that side of the Atlantic, and it was nice to finally attend a Formula One race. Haven't been a lifelong Formula One fan and not been to one, so that was that uh, was a nice weekend. Yeah,
0: excellent. Your ears still ringing?
1: Um, yeah, but not from the Formula One cars, unfortunately. Those days those days are kind of gone. But from the 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 Porsche Cup, some sort of Porsche 911 race that was on beforehand, that was closer to the Formula 1 of old. And also Mm. from your Uh, own screaming and enjoy. (laughs) uh, Yes, and also from Queen and Tiesto, which uh, I was not expecting at the weekend, but was an added bonus. Fun,
0: Mm. fun. Mm. I dare say that's going to be a weekend you're not going to forget anytime soon. Uh, Dave, I'm kind of curious here. So the show notes here for us... uh, have me being well they're listed as being oddly insistent for me to ask you about your latest tool purchase so what is the big surprise here
2: Uh, i just i just wanted wanted you to ask me so uh yeah i can get a jealous reaction but i have been using a remco electric work stand last week oh uh, hey how about that yeah so uh yeah got my hands on a i believe it's slightly pre-production so i still need to figure out what uh, what changes between production and pre-production but yeah i've been uh, watching it go up and down for the last week it's been quite amusing <laughs> so <laughs> have you been just like attaching weights to it to see to see how much it can hold uh i've just been trying to find progressively heavier e-bikes and then watching it do its thing um and i've become remarkably uh lazy within the last week of having it to the point where i i now wonder how i was lifting e-bikes so high before um, <laughs> so yeah I've, um i'm becoming an e-biker in every sense of the way like <laughs> bikes are getting harder to pedal bikes getting harder to lift anyway your belly's getting bigger no comment
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, I I want to say that I actually found a tool, a chain tool specifically, mm. that I know you don't have, that you might want. That is completely irrational for you to have, like hundred percent. Oh, is it the one that Abbey Bike Tools has for making their decade chain tools? No, no, oh. it's it's from Shimano actually. Oh, uh, but apparently you can actually buy the. Chain inst- uh, the pin installation tool that they use at the factory with an air gun. Mm, that's yeah. cool yeah. It's like eleven hundred dollars U.S. though, mm. and obviously very, very niche
1: application. Mm.
0: Um, James, uh,
1: you you have a responsibility not to tell Dave about things mm- like this. <laughs> You know,
0: the, the thing is, Send me a link, I know Send me a it, link. it doesn't matter if I mentioned it or not, because <laughs> yeah. Dave is going to find this sort of thing at some point anyway. Yeah. So, someone, this was on a Facebook post that I saw, and someone actually mentioned Dave. Uh, and there he was going to find it at some point anyway, mm. and mm. he is going to find some reason to try and own it.
2: Yeah, when I did the and factory make- tour of Abbey Bike Tools, they were uh kind of hinting at that I that the decade that they do is is a very good chain tool, but what they use to make the decade is 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 even better and that I should be getting such a hydraulic uh press to to size chains. Um mm. I did consider it. Uh but <laughs> but there are there are other things that I I, I could use more readily before such a thing. So I like thought you were going to say and, there are limits.
0: Yeah, food and mortgage payments and that yeah. sort of
2: thing. Uh Ronan, I don't think there are limits. I just I think there's there's higher priorities, like a lathe or a mill or a larger workshop to put them all in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say, Dave, even if someone gave you a lathe And a mill, where would you put them? Uh
2: I don't have a lathe because I don't have the room. So otherwise I would have found out figured out how to buy one by now. So anyway.
0: Mm. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. uh I guess we will stand by to see how much further Dave will be depleting his own bank account in the near future. But in the meantime, we've got some cool new tech news to talk about today. Uh, We've got some new bikes from Merida, Polygon, and Focus. Uh, Campagnolo's got some new road wheels. uh, And parent company of Wiggle and Chain Reaction Cycles, two big, huge online retailers, Uh, they're suddenly in a world of trouble after a, uh, well, after a pretty sudden 150 million euro Funding line that they had basically evaporated. Uh, we're also going to talk about whether road bikes should maybe be a lot more compliant than they are currently. Uh, we've got a few, well, we've got a fun new geek warning segment that we're going to try out today that may or may not result in some yelling amongst our panel here. We'll see. Uh, and we'll wrap up with our usual PSA, one that I think should be particularly timing, giving the shortening days for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, first though, we've got a couple of items for the corrections corner this week. Um, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, but we were talking about those new, uh, kind of prototype road shifters from Ingrid components. Uh, and we were talking about how they had lights built into them. It turns out they are not lights. Dave, oh. they're not lights. What, what are they? Uh, there is some sort of fitting. If you look closely, they have a Shimano cassette spline built into the outer outer, uh, outer diameter of them, so it's just they're their spec cassette holders. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I don't know, but they're, it's some sort of mechanical fitting. It is unfortunately not a. They're light. socket holders for your cassette. Tools. Yes, maybe, maybe you can you can plug your Crombie in there.
2: Oh, do we know what they are? Actually, we don't know what they are. You,
0: uh, I don't know what they are. It, it looks like just some sort of way that they. I mean, they they use that spline pattern in their rear derailleur too uh, yeah. to attach the pulley wheels on. Uh, so it might just be some design feature that they use in the construction of that shifter. I don't really don't really know. Mm. Uh, might be a way for them to add some color. That's that's a, an option too. I wonder. Mm. Uh, but either way, it is not a light, which is kind of a bummer because you know there were all sorts of options that you could have there for like making yeah like, some sort of face and whatever. But yeah, anyway, oh, well. not a light. Hmm. Maybe there's still uh, options to add like a
2: bell to the front or similar. But if it's even if it's just a hatch to service the shifter, I'll I'll be fine with it.
0: <laughs> okay okay uh dave you've got something for a corrections corner too i believe don't no, you do you not well less of a corrections
2: corner but uh a, a friend of the podcast uh dave Muzz in uh, in sydney he was uh listening and he was surprised that uh neither you james nor i could explain the uh dt swiss wheel lineup uh nomenclature so in, in terms of the the E versus the ER versus blah, 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 blah. Uh, and he, uh, so he quite smugly sent me a, a document that explains it. So I thought I would do just that. Uh, so uh, apparently it did used to be simpler. The numbers, like the 1400, 1600, 1800, they did used to correspond to the weight of the wheels. DC Swiss don't do that anymore because of all different uh, wheel diameters and axle options and various other reasons uh so the wheel set did get more complicated but basically the letters so you've got say er uh three letters is a high-end carbon rim two letters is a high-end aluminium rim and one letter is the entry-level aluminium rim so that would be like the pinned rim and then the numbers correspond to the hub so you've got 1100 1200 is like the 180 hub 1400 1500 is a 240 hub 1600 1700 is a 350 hub and then the 1800 1900 wheels is the 370 hub and then spline when uh that refers to like this the type of spokes so die cut spline classic uh and then yeah you got the the random numbers at the end like db equals disc brake or um yeah they'll they'll add like the rim depth at the end there so, yeah, not great for explaining on a podcast, but now you know.
1: I, I was going to say, I, th- I, th- I think, or at least my takeaway from the DT segment that we took out of the podcast the <laughs> <week> before that, <laughs> was that in researching all the wrong wheels, I at least uh, finally understood the, the DT uh, naming uh, mechanism. Mm-hmm. But... It's still confusing for the exact reasons that the listeners will be all too aware of, having just listened to you read out what you just read. Oh, out. I'm, I'm looking at so, the official <laughs> document in front of me, and I'm still confused.
2: But uh, uh,
1: yeah, I, I'm I'm a little confused from what you read out, though. That my understanding was that the the dicot ref- and the spline referred to effectively the way the hub hides. The the spokes versus uh, the sort of exposed nature of the spokes on the on the lower end wheels versus the anyway we're getting confusing again but um,
2: yeah no it is it's I, the hub it's the the hub lacing pattern basically so yeah so it's mm. like die cut and spline so spline is straight pull spokes die cut equals T head spokes and classic equals J bend spokes mm. oh I think I, I yeah. think it just lost me by, by yeah. that point uh, but yeah the main one there is the letters for me. So the the three letters is carbon. Two letters high end alloy. One letter low end alloy.
1: I'll give you one more to oh, yeah. add to the collection there. Yeah, collection there. Uh, so the three letters. Yeah, and you've got two different carbon realms. You've got the ARC and the ERC. Mm-hmm. And you may have noticed, You may have mentioned this already, but I didn't. I didn't hear it. So ARC is Aero Road, and ERC is Endurance Road. Mm. Presumably carbon. Yep. Did you mention that? I didn't you didn't No. There's, there's a further explanation yeah, yeah. Dave,
0: dave didn't actually mention what the particular letters meant
1: because mm-hmm. mm.
0: that's
2: a mystery still
0: <laughs> well if <laughs> like if what's an still listening. <laughs> if anyone's still listening to this podcast if you haven't <laughs> shut it off by now uh maybe we should just go ahead and dive into some of the other stuff here because yeah. i'm lost again now
2: yeah, I think I feel like we're gonna have weekly corrections corners explaining DT Swiss's <laughs> wheel lineups.
0: <laughs> oh man. All right, Dave. What <laughs> Dave, what do we have going on from Marita and Polygon for new bikes here? Because you've got a couple here to talk about that sound pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, so uh two new well-priced uh Alloy and carbon optioned gravel bikes from both, yeah, Polygon and Merida. Uh, the Merida we, we spoke about a few weeks ago when Mahorek won the gravel world championships on uh, what looked to be a new Silex, and that bike becomes official now. So, uh, yeah, carbon alloy options, uh, very, very tall stack heights, which explains why Mahorek uh, seemed to have sized down quite a bit on his uh, it's got internal cable routing through the headset. Yay. Uh, room for 700 by 45 millimeter tires. Uh, yeah. Fender mounts. It's got a front derailleur mount if you so wish. And they've slackened the head angle to 69.5 degrees, which, uh, yeah, overall it looks kind of like a, uh, almost like a Canyon Grizzle-esque kind of bike, a bit more adventure Uh, it looks good. And yeah, being Merida, you can't have it if you're in the USA, but in other markets it represents a good value option
0: yeah because merida is kind of like giant in the sense that they make their own bikes um so i i would imagine i believe merida makes bikes for other brands as well and i would Mm -hmm. imagine that like giant they have some agreements in place that keep them from completely undercutting others um but their bikes usually are good value yep so
2: yeah the unofficial story there is that uh they they have a uh a decent number of shares in specialized as a company and uh yeah the unef- the agreement there is that while specialized is, is uh holds its position in the US market that Marita will stay out and not create more competition for them uh so yeah that's that's why you don't find Marita in the US but uh another fun fact of Marita which uh was true as of at least 3 years ago and I hope is still true and I'm not spreading misinformation but uh they're aluminum manufacturing specialists so they Don't actually manufacture carbon bikes um which i hope is still true but yeah that was certainly the case so um yeah there you go so anyone that says uh the specialized tarmac is just a merida um
0: is not correct interesting so that makes me wonder who's making the carbon bikes for merida then yeah various contract manufacturers hmm okay then yeah uh all right what about this polygon then
2: yeah, so the Polygon, uh, even crazier value, generally speaking, because uh, Polygon is typically in most markets, sold consumer direct. Uh, uh, Tambora, so it's a kind of a flip chippable gravel bike. Uh, it's Polygon's first carbon gravel bike, and yeah, you've got uh, geo-adjust flip chips front and back. So there's one in the chainstay, there's one in the fork, kind of a bit like what we've seen with uh, Rondo in the past or say fifty one has the assassin which has a similar thing going on as well uh and yeah, so to change the wheels, you do need to start like uh swapping brake mounts as well if you want to swap between say a road wheel and a big gravel wheel so it's not the sort of thing that you'd do five minutes before a ride it's probably more a slightly set and forget kind of thing, but uh yeah there's room up for uh up to a seven hundred by forty five mm tire again, and uh Prices start from US $1,800 for the carbon version, uh, and a rival Axis bike uh, is US $3,000, which is pretty really impressive, again, for a carbon bike. Uh, probably what stands out most to me here is that uh, it looks
0: to have been beaten with the same ugly stick as Bianchi's gravel bike. It's. I was just going to say, I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and it's, it's not really the most elegant-looking thing. Nope. Uh, and the other thing, it... It does have a ton of mounts, mm. which uh, I think from a practicality from a practicality standpoint is certainly fantastic. Um, but I am just wondering if uh, whoever runs the Bicycle Pubes Instagram account, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, we've got a candidate for you. Yeah,
2: I was I was kind of humoring myself yesterday by trying to work out how much it would cost to outfit the Polygon Tambora <laughs> with Proto bolts. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, got up to like a couple of hundred bucks, and I was just like, oh, "That's yeah, never mind."
1: <laughs> so it's um, it it looks to me like after you've spent. And a large amount of time figuring out exactly which flip chip setting you want to land on mm. or f- set, settle on. uh You then have to work your way through all the different mounts and decide exactly where you want your your bottles and bags and so all the many options and options. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, Could be a which, long time before you get ready this which bike of the, Which it. of
2: the four spots on the down tube should you put your bottle cage?
0: <laughs> mm.
2: Yeah. So it's. uh, it's, uh yeah, I don't know. It's like it's great value bike. It looks to offer have a lot going for it. Some of the geometry that it offers are fairly smart. Um the stack does seem very tall though, so I mean that might be a bit limiting for some. But uh but yeah, I mean just I saw one in person yesterday and uh value aside, uh, it 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 doesn't appeal to me given
0: the the weird shapes going on there. So
2: yeah. Hmm.
0: It's it's yeah, I'm sorry, Polygon. This is not a pretty bike.
1: <laughs> oh no, no, it is not. So. <laughs> uh,
0: Ronan, were you going to add something?
1: I was going to say it's perhaps, you know, looking at it, a main part of the aesthetic there is just that kink in the top tube and... Yeah, you know, presumably part of that is just a function of such, such high stack at the front, you know. And you,
2: yeah, um, I believe. So what I was told is the kink in the top tube was a design choice to make it um, resemble the mountain bikes in Polygon's lineup. Like it's kind of a design cue of Polygon's mountain bike. So, um, but then they, uh,
1: yeah, uh, that doesn't explain some of the other weird kinks mm. in the bike. No, there, yeah. there, there's obviously other ways you could do it as well. Yes. But I think when you've got that much stack. Um, you you have to account for that somewhere when you get when you're going to get sloping to the seat tube.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, um and then yeah, some of the other weird bends and stuff are the result of like, you know, flip chips in the the chain stays for example as to why they've dropped the chain stay um right at the dropout, but even still it's uh yeah, I don't know. Bianchi's not not a not the gravel bike I would have copied.
0: <laughs> well, uh uh well I guess something that does look quite a bit more elegant to me, at least anyway. Um, Campagnolo's got some new wheels. Uh, Ronan, you looked into these. What are what do we have here?
1: Yeah, they've the so last year they unveiled the Hyperon Ultra and Campagnolo have now unveiled the Hyperon, which is well, they've said the Hyperon Ultra sort of sits alongside the Bora Ultra WTO as their premium flagship wheel sets and these new Hyperons sit alongside the Bora WTO, the 33, the 45, and the 60mm rims, as they're sort of, I don't think mid-range is the right term, but certainly lower than that. Second tier, yes, that's probably the word I'm looking for. Uh, Specifically, they are 37mm deep rims, 21mm internal. They haven't actually said in the press release, but I believe it's a 27mm external rim width because it is the same rim as used in the Hyperon Ultra. Um, The main differences are alloy hubs versus the, the carbon hubs in the, in the ultras. And you're also going to mess out in Campagnolo's Colt, uh, ceramic ultra, whatever bearings they are. Um, but yeah, they're 1340 grams. So effectively only a hundred grams heavier than the, the ultras. Um, but they save you something like 800 pounds, if I remember correctly versus the ultras. So, um, yeah, uh, It'll, it'll be up to the listener to decide if that 100 grams in the ceramic bearings is, is worth all that extra cash. Um, but they're certainly by no means a cheap wheel set because they are still £2,300 or $2,800. Is, is the rim still using that
2: kind of straight out of the mold gloss finish?
1: Yes, oh, it is. Nice. Yeah. So you're still, yeah. Mm. Uh, and the key takeaway for you two will be external nipples. Um, which is another thing we covered in the, the DT Swiss conversation that we removed from the podcast. But, um, yeah, uh, external nipples versus hidden nipples on the, on the Ultras.
0: Okay. Uh, and I mean, are they still doing the thing where uh, you don't have to apply tubeless
1: tape to run these things tubeless? I'm going to say yes uh, while I'm double-checking, um, but I think that's pretty much standard on, on Campag wheels at, at this point, isn't it? It has been for for a while. Um just, is that? I mean...
0: As someone who is generally a fan of tubeless for a lot of applications, uh, maybe I'm kind of on the fence of the road, but uh, I'm certainly a big fan of rims that don't require tape. Mm -hmm. Until you need uh, to relace them. uh, Yeah. When was last? But I'm with you on that one, Dave. But realistically, when was the last time you had to relace a wheel? I'd like to say yesterday, but it has been a few years. (laughs) (laughs) okay so i i agree with you in concept but from a more realistic standpoint i just don't know how big of a deal that is really yeah but no it is it is definitely a a much more
2: enjoyable tubeless experience having to never have to deal with tubeless tape because tubeless tape does wear out so uh it's a a reoccurring thing when you when you have a tubeless wheel that is taped
0: yeah and i feel like you get a kind of a more consistent tire fitment too because Mm -hmm. you know tubeless tape can have different thicknesses and you know depending on who you go with if you have to reapply it or whatever and like you got to make sure you get the exact right width and so on and so forth but if you don't need to have tubeless tape at all then that tire bed's a lot more consistent yeah well uh moving on to some not so great business news in the bike industry uh so i think most of the people who are listening to this podcast will be familiar with those kind of online retail giants wiggle and chain reaction cycles uh they both fall, fall under the corporate umbrella of uh cygna sports united and um i am definitely going to be tripping up here on some of the business terms here but essentially uh my understanding is they essentially had access to a 150 million euro equity line essentially Uh, that was supposed to be running through I believe 2025 I think maybe 2024 I can't remember Um, but for some extended period into the future and uh, that suddenly disappeared not too long ago Uh, and Wiggle has now been forced to go into what they call self-administration which is pretty similar to bankruptcy here in the US except it's going to be administered internally and not by an external party yeah similar to like a chapter 11 bankruptcy essentially yeah uh but it gets worse so Signa sports us uh which also handled stuff like uh you know they, they also had some in-house brands like new proof and vitas that sort of thing um, but the u.s division of Signa sports u.s uh they shut down very 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 suddenly uh, my understanding is they only had a couple days notice there was uh, basically no package or anything for employees from what i hear um it wasn't good uh, and from what I understand, unfortunately, Cygnus Sports US, uh, from what I understand, was doing quite well mm. uh, by all accounts. And essentially the takeaway here is that Wiggle and Chin Reaction are in some pretty, pretty serious trouble. Uh, you could argue that they're maybe one of the first dominoes to fall in what is hopefully not going to be a bigger cascade of issues in the bike industry right now, given the, the post-pandemic fallout. Um, but this is one that we're going to be watching pretty closely because it's kind of a big one.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, it can't not have a dominant effect on the UK industry. Uh, I mean, they're just such dominant um, sellers in the UK industry. And, and historically, they are used as often a, a, a global outlet for UK distributors and UK brands to clear out excess stock, which we know many of them have at the moment. So yeah, unfortunately, it it definitely does come at a, a bad time for the industry. And I think many... Are, Many others in the UK industry will feel this. Uh, and I think it, the other flow on effect here is that um, this company also owns a, quite a large distribution network of its own brands and uh, yeah, has hotlines, I believe, is, is their own distributor. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of other brands that are impacted by this because the UK is a, a pretty significant market to suddenly lose like this. So,
0: not great. Yeah, and to be clear, it wasn't just this 150 million euro equity line that got that disappeared. That was uh, that kind of precipitated things. They had been going downhill for a little while now. They posted some pretty big losses last year, for example. Uh, Brexit most certainly did not treat them well at all. Um, so things were not looking great already for for Wiggle in particular. Uh, and this is obviously really, really bad. So it would, kind of remains to be seen if they will be able to reorganize somehow. Um, but uh, we've heard from a whole bunch of escape collective members talking about what their experiences have been like ordering product from wiggle over the past couple of years. And it certainly sounds like the customer customer service experience has been going pretty sharply downhill over the last couple of years. So uh, and, and pricing is certainly is not as competitive as it used to be. So uh, yeah, I mean, as much as, as much as those online retailers really did not do good things for independent retailers worldwide, I would say, uh, it's still always unfortunate to hear of something like this happening in the sense that there are going to be an awful lot of people who are likely to lose their jobs.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, and the, one of the, we probably shouldn't get into rumors, but one of the rumors is that Mike Ashley, who uh, UK listeners may be aware of, he, he used to be the owner of Newcastle Football Club, and he is still the owner, I believe, of the Fraser's Group, which owns the likes of DW Sports and Evan Cycles and a few others that not exactly spring to mind right now, but he's rumored to be interesting interested if CRC or Wiggle comes up for sale. Uh he's a he's a potential buyer, which I mean maybe it's from the Newcastle United days, but he's he's not exactly uh, a favorite figure in, in in the UK business scene, put it that way. Interesting. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Uh for me like I I mean I kinda have a I wouldn't say a personal connection, but I used to suddenly order from chain reaction cycles quite a bit. Um, you know, maybe eight to ten years ago. Uh and used to, you know, I I knew they were a big thorn in the side of the Australian bike industry because they they were selling huge amounts. And I know Australia was a very, very critical market to that business at one point. Uh and various things happened that kind of eroded their success. Uh like Australia changed its policy on imports and brought in GST for anyone selling over, I think it was $80,000 of goods a year into the country. So all of a sudden GST was applied. And then pretty similar timing, both Shimano and SRAM brought in global pricing strategies and global distribution um, policies that basically meant chain reaction cycles and Wiggle couldn't sell Shimano and SRAM components outside of its UK market. Uh, And I think stuff like that has has probably really worn on them over the years as you know they, they took on a lot of investment at right around that time when they're selling globally and being this big dominant global player and since then they've had to refocus on almost focusing on their own house brands and, and clothing um and really trying to be dominant there and it's just it's not the same market as being able to sell everything to do with a bike so yeah certainly a, a harder
1: market than it used to be it's not the same market but brands like prime and vitus that i'd be aware of they've yeah. they've Come a long way. And, yep. um, you know, it's it obviously very worrying times for um, anybody who works at, at Vitus. North America is obviously, and they only just moved into North America like less than a year ago. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, but for customers who currently have Vitus bikes, I'm sure they have a lot of question marks on that at the moment also. Yeah, and and
2: nuke proof and DHB and yeah, and Prime Wheels that you mentioned, like there's some really good brands there that they that they created effectively and that they own, and it'd be a, a real shame if those were to disappear. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed these brands can find a new home or find new funding to continue.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know enough about how those brands operate and how they their you know like R and D and marketing that sort of thing. I I would have to imagine all of that stuff was pretty heavily intertwined. Um, but even if the company is not really able to reorganize and they need to sell off pieces of it, you know, it, uh, is it even the sort of thing where a brand like Nukeproof or Vitas could even be sold off at this point, given how, how ingrained they are into that whole corporate structure? I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I hadn't, I mean, I, I'll admit I haven't ridden either uh, bikes from either one of those brands, but from what I understand, they were pretty good uh certainly very good value and people Mm -hmm. seem quite happy with them uh and it it definitely would be a shame if if they went away yep anyway one to one to watch i mean this is this
2: issue is not going to resolve itself overnight so we'll surely report on it again
0: uh well in uh somewhat more uplifting news i guess from the tech perspective uh one last new bike that we're going to talk about is this new focus izako max from that german brand uh it's it focuses part of the, the Pond conglomerate uh, it also includes brands like Cervelo Santa Cruz Cannondale uh they have just announced this new Isoquil Max uh, i think i think it's fair for us to call it like a semi aero all-rounder i guess mm-hmm. uh it's a road racing bike comes with most of the usual claims You know, it's got truncated airfoil shaping. Focus says it saves like six and a half watts or something at 45k an hour. And I guess that translates to about an hour or (laughs) translate to an hour, (laughs) translate to about a minute 45 at over 45k. An hour would be really impressive. Yeah. Uh, Compared to the previous version, uh, Focus is also saying it's about 15% stiffer at the BB, not quite 10% stiffer at the head tube. Uh weights about what you'd expect for a bike like this. Uh that there's two versions. The higher end one is supposedly about 865 grams. I presume that's for a medium. And then the second tier one comes in at about 1050. Uh, what I find particularly interesting about this whole thing is that focus is quite open about the idea that this new Stockholm max is less comfortable than before by a fairly significant margin, at least for the frame itself. They're saying something like 48% or something. Um Which kind of leads me into what I want to talk about for this week's uh, On Our Minds and Over the Heads of Our Families segment. Because uh, previous episode, we talked about Lauf recently announcing a road bike that was all about compliance They're making a big, big deal about that. Uh, And I just got back from visiting smaller custom carbon builder, uh, Argonaut Cycles, up in Bend, Oregon. And that's a brand that has always put a huge, huge emphasis on ride quality and comfort. Uh and what I'm curious about is maybe why we are seeing such divergent approaches here because to me anyway I kind of feel like compliance is generally a good thing even on a high performance road bike so why would you want less of it um so I I I've had her, I've heard from companies on occasion every now and then saying that uh, like professional racers in particular seem to like a stiffer riding bike yeah. which is Interesting, considering that we've spent an awful lot of time over the last couple of years talking about uh, lower pr- tire pressures and wider tires and getting more tire grip and ride quality and lower rolling resistance and that sort of thing. Uh, so, like, is it kind of like a road feel and precision sort of thing? Ronan, can you help, can you help me answer this one here?
1: I, I am continually amazed by the amount of people who I still speak to that say when something feels harsher, it feels faster. Um and how that is better than something that maybe rides more comfy, but doesn't feel as fast as a result. Even though it may actually, if you were to test the two setups, the comfier, slower feeling one may actually be the faster. Yeah. Um. So I, I don't think that's. I don't think that message or that uh, uh, theory has got through to to everybody, and especially to the pros. I think, um, a harsher riding bike, we still associate that with going faster. Um and D- Dave wants to get on here, but I've got an example that I experienced just this week that can prove that. So I'm gonna let Dave speak first.
2: <laughs> I was just gonna say I uh quite a few years ago Factor launched uh I guess or relaunched its brand and uh, I was at Till Under and they had a bunch of the one which is like their Sprinters bike with the Jill the down tube. And I went for a ride uh along the Adelaide beaches and Baden Cook was on the ride. And I was remarking to him, like, wow, I'm actually really impressed by this bike because it's actually more comfortable than visually it looked and that I had expected that such a sprinter, aero-focused sprinter's bike would be, and that's really great. And he his response was immediately... Oh yeah, we're fixing that. We're gonna get rid of all that comfort. We're gonna make it as stiff as it can be, because that's what you want out of a sprinter's bike. And I'm like, oh, okay. I I didn't that's not what I was, you know, suggesting here, but okay. Um so yeah, I think it's there's definitely, as you say, James, there's that element that uh certainly the racers and and more traditional sprinters uh consider like a excessively stiff bike to that that immediate snap of response to to equate to speed um and i do question whether that's actually any truth to that but Ryan,
1: yeah it, um it, it reminds me of the latest track madone the launch around that track we're making a lot of um noise about the compliance and the comfort that they've built into that bike and i sort of asked engineers i can't remember exactly how it come up but the one point that sticks out in my mind is their theory, if I remember correctly, was that you know getting to a finish line fresher means that you're better able to get to the finish line first. Um, but the big challenge is how do you actually measure that? How do you prove that it is more comfortable, even if it is more compliant? Does that does that mean it's going to be more comfortable? Where does the compliance have to be? And as such, my takeaway from that conversation was: it actually the the marketing around making a comfier, more compliant, and thus better bike for the rider because the rider's less fatigued is much more difficult than first of all weight because that's you know we know that's incredibly easy to market if a bike is lighter than the previous version job done and then aerodynamics is somewhere in between and that a bike can be faster it can be one tunnel tested and you can almost test it you know you can there, there are stories of, of tricks being done in the one tunnel to to make even slower bikes look faster and, and it all depends on the way you test it but the point is you can make a bike uh, more appealing by demonstrating that it is more aerodynamic. It's very difficult to make it more appealing based on comfort because there isn't really a metric around that that yeah. you can easily give
2: yeah the 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 one thing I keep coming back to, and this is something Josh portner often um hits on is that uh, they can now model for for race outcomes and for um yeah, for speeds. Mm-hmm. they so that you know they have the model for rolling resistance and aerodynamics and weight and how that all factors into the end result, Say up mount One two or, or you know on any given stage and they can get within you know seconds of of the actual outcome uh the model does not account for stiffness doesn't come into it mm. so and that for me is quite telling that you know it's it's not it's clearly not enough of a performance metric to affect the the outcomes of
0: of the mathematic oh. model or is it not enough of a performance metric, or is it the sort of thing that is just it's just very difficult to model? Perhaps, but
2: surely the model would be flawed and coming up with uh, you know differences between reality and modeling if if it were a a big enough factor.
1: Hmm. My my, when I, I've heard that, Josh said that a few times as well, and obviously the model being so close to the actual result proves that there is accuracy there but the question mark for me is that you know the the model also can't account for cornering and descending yeah. and you know yeah. th- those things where actually stuffness can play uh, a major a major role so um yeah i, I can see both sides of that argument mm. i guess
0: for me I, I mean i've definitely been more and more of a proponent of uh, kind of more compliant, softer riding bikes. Uh, as 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 I advance in age, particularly. Um, but it's not even just that. I, I I've always well, I I guess I've been steadily coming to this conclusion that those softer riding those softer riding bikes also have a big advantage in terms of traction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and like coming back to to Baiting Cook's comments about sprinting. I mean, it, who 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 am I to to question his experience sprinting as far as a stiff bike versus a soft bike? Um, but you know, Ronan, I mentioned in the show right at the beginning that you were you were just in Austin at the F one race, and you know, Formula One cars as far as automobiles go are pretty much the tippy top of the technological pyramid, right? And those road or the, those those tracks are, I mean, yeah, they're not glass smooth. Um, But they're pretty darn smooth. And suspension is still a very, very, very big element to how well those things perform. And granted that you've got four wheels instead of two. Uh, Obviously, we're not talking about the same sorts of vehicles. But even on motorcycles, for example, like you would never consider having a motorcycle that doesn't have suspension. Um, And then even if you look at at, at kart racing – you know, those things don't have proper suspension as far as moving parts go, but flex and compliance is very much a part of how those frames are engineered uh, because otherwise if, they, if they're just rigid as a board, you have no traction. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, Austin's probably a bad example for that and there's a whole lot of controversy yeah, it, yeah, around that.
0: Yeah, okay, yes, <laughs> but, well speaking.
1: But yeah, how those cars... Ride the curbs, but also, you know, uh, perform under braking and accelerating is actually one of the key components that goes into lap time. Uh, And that all comes down to compliance and stiffness and and getting the right balance. And obviously a balance in the bike is also what we're looking for. Too far in either direction is going to be a problem. You know, too stiff isn't going to be nice descending either. And, you know, too compliant, I'm convinced there will start being uh, performance issues at, at some point. You, well, you, to compliant you introduce you potentially introduce things like speed
2: wobble and mm. Uh, mm. yeah, and obviously in a sprint you don't want your wheels going in separate planes to each other. So there, there absolutely is, is this this <laughs> medium balance.
0: Yes, I mean I, I, certainly when you get to the point where you start to push the limitations of how much, I guess, directional flex you can tune into a carbon structure. Um, but you know, I posed the question to a couple of. Uh, carbon engineers at different bike companies over the last couple of days about this and the consensus that I get is that it seems like brands certainly could introduce more compliance into lightweight road racing frames but right now they don't mainly because the the market doesn't seem to have an appetite for it and mm-hmm. there is this perception that a softer riding bike also equates to a slower yeah. or you know lower performance bike.
1: There is something about getting on a a harsh stiff bike that if you want to roll out your driveway and have a good time from the second you yeah. push in the pedals you need a stiff harsh bike to have that good time if you want a bike that's maybe actually faster it, it maybe doesn't feel all that good you don't you don't get the same initial response or acceleration yeah. sensation that you do from a very stiff bike
0: but but again I mean I think it's important to to not conflate things like bottom bracket and head tube stiffness with like a vertical, a vertical compliance so if you are able to have a frame that maintains that level of BB and head tube stiffness, but also give you a lot more ride comfort, then it it's, it's just a little perplexing to me why that wouldn't be a desirable thing. Because I remember I went to the Canyon Ultimate launch last year, I guess it was. I can't remember exactly now. And for their top-end CFR model, they have a... Uh, a special seat post is just, just for that. It's it's significantly lighter than the the ones that they include in the other models. Uh, it's got a zero offset because it's apparently what the, their pro riders want. They want to sit a little bit further forward on the bikes. Um, but they also got feedback from their pro riders that they wanted a stiffer ride. So that seat post, uh, I can't remember what the description was that they said, but it was basically like kind of ridiculously stiff. Like that seat post just doesn't bend. Um, which again, I mean, having... Having tested that version of that bike and then uh, the entry level version of that ultimate, uh, I mean, the C post on the entry level one is definitely more comfortable.
1: And I think that maybe gets to why it might not be all that uh, enticing for some brands to offer more compliance, is because it either requires a different C post, like the example you've just given, James, or it requires, you know, different carbon layups or different waves in different areas and a whole lot more. Uh, complexity, and complexity equals cost. Um, So I think perhaps that's sometimes um, part of the challenge there. The example I was going to give earlier was uh, I've got the lightweight Obermeyer Evos in for review at the moment, Um, and I also have a V4 RS, which comes equipped with MV 3.4 SES wheels, if I remember the name correctly, Uh, and obviously... slamming it, hey? 28-mile tires, yeah, (laughs) 28-mile tires tubeless, all the all the modern uh, quirks, and you can obviously run those much lower pressure. Um but then switching to the lightweights, such a narrow rim, I well at least I believe I had to move to a narrower tire. Uh, and with a narrower tire then if I'm going to follow some of the online calculators in terms of pressure and that, I end up at much, much higher tire pressures. So a stuffer wheel with a narrower tire and higher pressures, higher pressures than even the MVs can Hold because they're hookless mm-hmm. um absolutely transformed the sensation of riding that conago and i'm not even gonna say if it was in a good or a better good or a bad way but i can tell you by the time i got home after a 90 minute ride on irish roads it was not a nice sensation um but 10 years ago when i was racing full-time i distinctively remember going from dolan bikes in 2012 which had a the the RS in those days, like this is over a decade ago, was a very stuffed bike. Had a similar ride feeling, had similar sized tires. You know, I was probably running higher pressures, but on the same roads, and you know, hands and rear end were numb by the time we came home. And then a year later, when we moved to the the Vitus, the first of the the, the modern after Chain Reaction took over that brand, um, and the it was a funny thing because when I was asked about that bike back then, I I you know being a being a pro or not pro, but being a, a sponsored rider, you couldn't really say bad things about, about the bike. Uh, so I used to just say that it was the most comfortable bike I'd ever ridden, which was true, uh, but it was not what I was looking for in those days. Um, and and that was kind of what I was reminded of when I when I moved to the lightweight with the narrow tires this week, just how harsh and how stiff a ride we used to, or I used to think was much faster and much better yeah. and much more desirable yeah. and how much I hated it. 10 years later
2: (laughs) yeah this is this is an area where cross-country mountain biking went through huge development over the last five ish years is that they they actually started doing time testing legitimate time testing with power with power and heart rate and other metrics uh and you know working out the the stress on the body and they figured out that a a heavier dual suspension is is almost always faster and more efficient off-road uh versus you know the hardtail that always felt faster because you're out of control so yeah it's um I, I feel like the road space is still learning this lesson and and unfortunately i think in some cases it's kind of repeating the the lessons you know it wasn't what 10 years ago cancellara was predominantly you know often riding like a demane and doing a lot of seated attacks on that quite a comfortable bike and I, I feel like we're kind of slowly coming back full circle to to riders picking a more comfortable bike so anyway
1: the, I also I published an article last week on a couple of UCI rules that I dreamt up that I thought might help in terms of sustainability in the cycling industry. Uh, and one of the things that I'd come across research in that article were flax fibers and biofibers, fibers, so, so forth. And actually they're dampening properties that actually could be quite valuable in terms of, you know, improved ride comfort and also in terms of improved traction and, and other things. And chatting to B-Comp, the Swiss company who are behind the Amplitech, if I remember the name correctly. It's a flax fiber that they produce. The, that, that 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 material is used quite a lot in motorsports for its dampening properties. Now, um, Stefan Christ at, at BMC told me that they had looked into flax as long ago as, a, as 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 far back as a decade ago, mm-hmm. and the stiffness just wasn't there at that time. So you know there there, there is obviously a, a trade off there, and the big trade off is the extra weight that these flax fibers uh, add to to a to a structure. But that dampening properties, you know, if that's something that can be realised in future with the right stiffness ratios, you know, that 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 surely or that. that potentially could be, could be the next step. And according to BComp, they are working with cycling manufacturers at the moment. And if I remember off the top of my head, it was like seat posts, handlebars, saddles, rims, basically all the, all the contact points and touch points that can influence uh, comfort. Yeah.
2: But yeah, fundamentally it comes back to the industry needs to get over trying to sell forever lighter product and forever stiffer product that feels good out of the driveway and actually isn't better. And then once that message gets across and once consumers actually start realizing that that highest stiffness to weight ratio product isn't actually the best riding bike, uh, then at that point, I think we'll actually see brands being able to successfully implement such flax fibers and, and other materials. James? I blame Tour Magazine. Yeah, and that keeps coming back to my mind as we, you know, 10 years ago, Tour Magazine was was ranking bikes purely on stiffness to weight ratio. And that encouraged brands like Canyon uh, to create bikes that literally were as stiff as possible and as light as possible without necessarily considering how well they rode. Uh, and yeah. yeah, thankfully, I think we're past those days, but I, I still see a few brands still playing that game. And um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, we're getting to a point where they realize that how a bike rides is more important than how a bike tests.
1: Mm. Not not exactly known for his sprinting prowess, but I remember Dan Martin saying, um, "If a bike is too stiff and you're sprinting out of the saddle, then your back wheel can be skipping all over the place, and actually you end up sprinting slower." Mm. Um, you know, regardless of his sprinting abilities, <laughs> um, still a, a valid point worth worth considering. And if you do have a bike that you think is too stiff or too harsh, or whatever, tire pressure and lower tire pressure are still your friends. Yeah, he may not have been a sprinter.
0: But he could attack fast
1: say, uphill, downhill, all sorts. So he knows a thing or two about it. Yeah,
0: I, I was going to say he may not have been known as a sprinter, but his power output is still way higher than any amateur out there. Hmm. Anyway, all right. Well, let's let's wrap up that part. Uh, I well, I guess we'll see where this goes in 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 the years to come. I do think this is going to be something that we are also going to be keeping an eye on. Um. But uh dave you had an idea for a new geek warning segment that sounded pretty intriguing actually what what, what have you concocted here what are you calling it
2: uh, i'm calling it pick one uh yeah basically we uh pick a category and then each of us have to share which product within that category would be the one we would choose if we could only have one product uh i mean yeah we're we're tech editors so we're we're kinda of used to having uh more than one of any anything and having the luxury of not having to use the same product over and over and over again. But uh yeah, I'm saying if you could only have one, which one would it be? Uh, mm. so yeah, I think yeah, we'll see how this like goes. It. But uh each each week we might try pick a different product category and debate or share. I don't know if it needs to be a debate. But uh yeah. Uh I
1: Running, uh, meters up first. Arrow meters up first.
0: Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, just to be clear, just to set some ground rules right off the bat here, I think there are a couple of categories that we're gonna just going to go ahead and take off the table right away. Yeah, for arrow meters, running, you can pick one for uh, James and I. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. That 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 segment will be called suggest one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but so we're not going to do arrow meters. Yeah, and, okay. and and Dave, I would. I'm really, really leaning toward not letting you pick t- any sort of tool as a category. Why not? Mm. It just doesn't seem fair.
1: Oh. I, I think if you want to bring a tool up, you have to buy it that week and then mention it in the opening segment of the. the oh,
0: we don't the, need to give him any more motivation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's already right. got it. James, we right, well, control. we will.
0: We will figure <laughs> this out as we go. But I think it's going to be pretty fun. Dave, what is yeah. the first category for this week? Since You get to pick since you concocted this whole thing. I was thing? thinking, given you guys
2: are heading into winter
0: uh, in in your
2: northern hemisphere, uh, do some uh, rear uh,
0: daylight running lights, or aka hmm. rear lights. Uh, I, I definitely have some thoughts on this one. Ronan, do you have a favorite that you run? Do you use um, one, actually, first of all?
1: I, I do. Um, and it's it's maybe not the most practical example but it's one of the few things that comes on every ride and i would if it wasn't charged i'd probably decide to ride the turbo instead Uh, and that is the varia rct715 the 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 varia radar radar with the light and camera built into it Mm. um so yeah that's that's a no-brainer for me yeah
2: wow I would have hmm. thought you'd be picking something smaller and and more aero. That's that's a yeah, surprise. It's a misconception about me, Dave. Yeah. It's uh, Look at you putting self-preservation ahead of speed. Wow.
0: <laughs> well, I think I think the way that Ronan's looking at it, you know, that that light is putting out so much so much wattage in terms of light output mm. that he's comparing it to kind of like like the little ion engines that they use in space. So it's actually sort of very very microscopically push, pushing him forward.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think mean, that's they. they there, there if we've got a listener who can invent something like that. <laughs> but yeah, like no, it is entirely on a on a safety level, mm-hmm. um, and and that one of the things I like most about it is that you can actually just you know, scroll down from the top of your Garmin screen, uh, swipe across a couple of times, and then you can select the light mode function. Uh, and I just like it to flash every at the start of every ride, I wish it would remember and maybe it does, but I haven't really bothered to figure that out yet, but I wish it would remember my preferred setting from the last time I rode and and just take that up from, from the start. Nevertheless, uh, it's easy to do, uh, and having the camera built in there again, if something happens, um, you can easily save files. It's always recording. You can set it to only record on, on radar activity. Um, and then just having the radar there and, you know, a little bleep from the, from the head unit and a little display in the head unit, giving me an idea of where vehicles are. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer. We, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to do these things to ride safely on the road, obviously. Um, but nevertheless, just knowing and being aware that a vehicle is approaching from the rear, I find that looking behind me and making eye contact, a human connection with the driver, has reduced the amount of close passes and scary moments I've had by an, a measurable amount, um, and as such, it may not be right, but I'm I'm willing to do it.
2: Hmm. Dave, what about you? Uh, I am not on the Varia train just uh, mainly because I don't always ride with a head unit, and I don't like the distraction of it I'm um, i'm generally more uh i'd never listen to music while i ride so I'm, I'm i feel like i'm generally pretty well attuned to what's coming up behind me and i'm sort of the person in the group that tends to call out car back a minute before everyone else does <laughs> so uh yeah certainly where i ride the roads are. Uh, um, you know either, either got a shoulder or you've got pretty quiet roads that you can hear the cars coming for quite a while so yeah so for me I, I tend to stick with the more traditional real lights. so um, as of late I've been quite liking the the Lazine strip drive um, specifically the the 300 lumen pro version which is a slightly bigger one um, yeah just nice easy rubber strap that can move from bike to bike nothing too fancy with the mount um, yeah simple it's a very on-ride. bright very very bright i know it's being seen uh easy to charge um yeah and it's it's been reliable for me to date so uh can't complain and it's also it's also not at a, a price point that you know if if it were to get lost or, or get rained on i'd I'd be too upset about it you know it's it's quite a affordable price so yeah i've been quite impressed by that light
0: hmm. interesting because i think not too long ago uh at at the old place mm-hmm. uh I think several of us had picked the Bontrager flare as our favorite. Yep. Still use Uh, it. And I do still like that real light a lot. Yeah. I still use Um, it from time to time. Yeah. I I do like that one a lot, mainly for its flashing pattern. Um, But it does seem like some other lights that have come out more recently maybe do a better job of kind of being more visible from various angles. I Mm -hmm. think, like, be kind of like that, that, that lasagna light you were talking about. Like, it's, kind of big and like you can see it from a pretty wide angle of view
2: yeah Um, i think they claim 270
0: degree visibility which i think is probably a little optimistic but let's call it 220 (laughs) sure still pretty good though yeah um so uh i guess my choice i'm going to kind of split the difference a little bit uh because i i do uh dave i i will say that i was I had I held your opinion not too long ago as far as thinking that I could hear thinking that I was pretty good at hearing cars coming up from behind um but particularly with with where I am there's definitely a lot more electric cars mm-hmm. on the road than there were not too long ago yep. um and when I'm on gravel the the tires my my own tires are making a lot more noise than they used to um and I'm I found not too long ago that I Uh, especially when you add wind noise into the equation, that I I definitely wasn't hearing things coming up as well as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I started using a Garmin Varia 515, the one without the camera. Uh, Actually, maybe the one I have is a 510. I can't remember. Um, But anyway, uh, the the Varia model that does not have the camera. And uh, it's been interesting how, while it doesn't actually like provide any physical protection. Uh, I, I agree with Ronan that there is a certain peace of mind in just knowing what's coming up behind. Yeah. Um, but one thing that Ronan didn't mention that I, I did find really cool about that Varia is that when it does detect that a car is approaching from behind, it ch- it changes the the flash pattern, um, which to me is sort of akin to you sort of like turning around and like jumping up and down waving your arms around and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, it's kind of the it's, it's nice to have that sort of automatic feature yeah. where you presumably get a little bit more. Yeah. You sort yeah. of just almost kind of like force a little bit more awareness or visibility at that point. So yeah. uh, I've been a pretty big fan of running that on my road bikes uh, or I guess whenever I'm out in road road or gravel. And then otherwise, if I have to ride my mountain bike somewhere to go to a trailhead, I still like that flare as long as it fits. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I definitely don't run the, the barrier on the mountain bike, uh, mainly just because it's too big but uh but otherwise the flare is still pretty high on my list
2: Mm. there you go
0: yeah lots of Um, good
1: options the only thing i hadn't considered actually with my whole philosophy on turning around and making eye contact with the driver was the driverless cars that i spotted or the autonomous vehicles i spotted in austin i'm not sure how you make a human connection with those things um they're yes very weird but anyway that's that's another problem for another day
0: uh, I'm waiting for someone to come up with a very, very oversized rear daytime running light that is shaped like a stop sign. <laughs> that could be that could be the solution there. I mean, there's uh, been anyway. some <laughs> very cool lights
2: concepts over the years which have kind of failed to reach uh, mainstream popularity, but ones that, you know, flash uh, the equivalent of stop signs down onto the ground to give you like a, a light barrier around you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know these things are Out there and about, um, for me, it it comes back to effectiveness. And for me, yeah, a light pointing back still to me is the most effective during the day. So,
1: I had it must be close to a decade ago, also, but I had a night rider at one point that shot beams onto the road that was supposed to be like Mm a yep, the lasers. And I never, you know, got to ask a driver if it made any difference to them or not. But I did a lot of commuting at that time, but um, Hmm. yeah.
2: Yeah. Speaking of uh, commuting, I mean now we're going on a tangent, but uh uh James um oh here they are. Uh, Redshift. I've completely forgotten the brand name. Uh their pedals because I had the their pedals on my e-bike for my e-commuter bike for a while. Those make a huge difference, like just having the bio motion with like a flashing light. Uh so yeah, they're rechargeable LEDs that slip in magnetically slip into front and back of the pedals. They're very clever. They depending on the orientation of the pedal, it switches the light between um, a white light or a red light. It's it's very very smart tech. But uh, yeah, I was I was astonished at how much uh, more room I was being
0: given compared to usual with yeah. running those pedals. Yeah, well, uh, I run those on my Urban Aero cargo bike mm-hmm. actually, and I think one thing that's really nice about those one they're they're quite bright. Yeah, uh, like pretty impressively. So I think. Uh, and then on that Urban Arrow, what's interesting is those front lights are not visible from the front, uh, mainly because the box is blocking the the yep. visibility from the front. Um, but what I seem to th- well, what I think anyway, when what I'm theorizing is uh, at night, what those forward lights are doing actually is sort of lighting up the bike. Yep. And it's just sort of making the whole thing a little bit more visible um so yeah i'm with you i'm i'm quite a fan of those as well i've been using those for quite a long time mm. uh i i don't love that there's four things that you have to charge no. it does at least include a separate four bank usb charger which is at least make, it makes that a lot more convenient um but i love the concept of it for sure
2: yeah because it like it sets your width right like it's yeah. that's kind of exactly. the floor of most lights is that they're, they're centrally placed so you you know the the motorist doesn't really see the the width of you and they you know, they can see the light, but they can still get pretty close to you unintentionally. Whereas those pedals basically set the outer perimeter of you as a, as a human. And they yeah. you just, you know, they then give that, that outer space. Um, yeah. They give space from where those lights are. So um, yeah, it's a cool product. Unfortunately, it's not really attainable on, you know, a clipless system and.
0: Well, they do, they do make a clipless system now, just not really for the road.
2: It's not something uh, you'd use on a performance bike.
0: It, not really. No, not no. Um, yeah, quite big, quite heavy, that sort of thing. Still pretty neat, though. I, I like those. Um, so all this discussion of rear lights, however, does conveniently lead us into our PSA for the week. Um, because uh, as I, I know that we have mentioned this on a previous episode, but I'm going to go ahead and repeat it uh, today just because I think it's important. Um But one thing I still see regularly out on the roads, uh, particularly as we're, like, as you said, Dave, we're losing daylight here in the northern hemisphere pretty quickly. Uh, If you are running a daytime running light, uh, please check that it's actually visible in daylight because I can't tell you how often I come up to a cyclist on the road, whether I'm on the bike or in a car. And I basically don't even notice until I'm practically on top of them that they have a rear flasher on there. Um, and I'm sure those people who are running those, they I mean you you intentionally put those things on there because you presumably are trying to increase your your uh your envelope of safety there. Um, but if you're sticking something on there that no one's gonna be able to see, particularly in bright daylight, then that thing is just not doing its job. And if anything, it's providing a false sense of uh false sense of security. Um so I think I've mentioned this before, but one thing I usually uh one thing I often advise to people, if you're curious if that thing's visible. Uh, you know, set it out just in front of your house, or just stick it somewhere, and then walk kind of far away, like you know, maybe several blocks or something, and just see if you can still see it. See how bright it is. And I think in a lot of cases, you'd be shocked at how invisible those things become with not very much distance.
1: Um, uh, I might just drop an extra PSA this week because it's it's related, and it's also related to my pick one, which was the varia. And then an if if out there you do have a varia or if you're considering one you should also consider the my my bike traffic connect IQ app for your for your Garmin head unit uh cuz it it just you don't really have to do anything you just set it up on your Garmin and then it actually will count the amount of vehicles passing you, it will collect what speed they were doing as they passed you, correlate that with your speed, uh, plot it all on a map of your ride. Uh, it does does a heck of a lot of stuff that I find fascinating sometimes. You do have to, it's a bit awkward, you have to like download a foot file, upload it to the My Bike Traffic website then to, to actually see all this data. It's not automated as of yet, but it is a, a very nice feature if you've already got the Varia. Uh, the five-year-old in me wants to know whether it uh, counts the colors of the car. <laughs> <laughs> I th- think that's coming in a future firmware upgrade. Not sure. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 don't believe so, uh, Dave. Sorry to, sorry to spoil that one for you.
0: Huh? Uh, that would be very convenient if it did do that, because my daughter and I have this. Ha- ha- we, we've, we've had this running game for a while now, where we, where we get points for for pointing out yellow cars that are out on the road. And I will say that she is absolutely crushing me at the moment. And if that app did provide the capability to count yellow cars, that would be
1: very, very, very helpful for me. Um, but yes, unfortunately, it sounds like that's not going to be helpful. Oh, well. I I wonder if you can, uh, like, I don't know, import the fit file into AI or something, and I can uh, take it from the that, RCT video and calculate the colors and that. that.
0: That sounds like far, far too much work running. <laughs> way I mean, way too much work
1: yeah it's more like something that's definitely going to happen at some point than than something we're going to have to do but um yeah i mean we're kind of getting away from it a bit now but the it's either called my bike traffic or my bike radar traffic or something that's like a connect iq app um and yeah it just it, like the the fascinating thing i find is just the vehicle count and you know Days that are busier, you can see objectively how much busier they are. Um, the one thing I wish it could do, which it actually doesn't, is sort of give you a close pass or wide pass sort of rating or, or score. um But yeah, uh, the the not so nice feature that it includes, which is ultimately probably its strongest point, is the passing speed of the the vehicle. And I've had scenarios where you know a driver has really. Uh, frightened me or scared me or whatever and I've gone back that evening downloaded the file looked at it you can see as the driver is like 120 130 meters away they're doing say 100 kilometers per hour within the speed limit Uh, and by the time they get within 40 15 10 5 and right past me they're actually have started accelerating Um, which is you know a, not a nice thing to see but further proof of the sort of assumption I made at the time that that person has done something hateful on purpose rather than through negligence or just not seeing me or something. They've actually seen me and they've actually accelerated towards me as they've actually passed far too closely. Doesn't exactly help with the anxiety when riding on the road. It it does not. No, it does not. Mm, well, <clears throat> mm, Sorry, that was a bit of a uh, <laughs> We're going to go ahead and end the show on a, on a <laughs> yes. good old downer there, Ronan. Thanks very we much. Got anything else in that run sheet we could pull out, just to end this.
0: Well, anyway. On a brighter uh, note. I hope you did enjoy that new segment, pick one. Uh, I think we're going to have some fun with that. Uh, And hopefully you found that PSA useful, even if it was maybe a little bit repetitive, Uh, a couple of things I just want to remind you of, as we close out this week's episode of geek warning. Uh, First of all, thanks to all of our members because uh, you are making this happen. So uh, I'm not going to browbeat you about becoming a member. If you're not save that for another day. Um, one thing I do want to request to everyone, however, is uh, if you have not left, if you have not yet left us a review and rating on iTunes to so please do that. Uh, and we also have some new podcasts that are tech related that I just want to remind everyone of. Uh, Ronan's got his own podcast called The Performance Process, uh, which goes into quite a lot of detail of as far as uh, essentially essentially extracting a lot more speed out of either your gear or your body and some of the stuff that he's been talking about with others has been pretty interesting there. Uh, and we also have, I know we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, but we do have uh special members only editions of Geek Warning coming up. Uh, we're going to be kicking off specifically with a few Ask a Wrench episodes. So uh, you definitely don't want to miss those. And those, as I mentioned, are going to be members only. Um... So yeah, we've got some pretty good stuff coming up. So make sure you sign up to Escape Collective if you are not already if, if you're not already a member, so you don't miss out on anything. And with that, uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.